0: Welcome back to Highly Respected. I'm your host, Scott Greer, and today we're going to have an informed and incredible episode for you guys, so hopefully you enjoy. Today we're going to talk about a topic that I wanted to talk about last week, but I didn't really get the opportunity to because we had just had so much news, and this topic will delve into related topics that I also want to discuss as well. It's not the newsiest option, but compared to what's going on, um, you know, I could talk about the shutdown fight with the GOP and stuff, but I mean, it's the same. That's really the same stuff that's been happening uh, earlier this year. I mean, the short uh, end of that question answer is just, you know, this um, our <laughs> short end of the answer. I don't think that's the way. the best way to answer that in the shortest way possible is just to say it's like once again, the GOP just playing theater. They have a thin majority. They're not able to do a lot in Congress, and there's conservative members who want to make who want to make a name for themselves, show themselves off. Like I really like Matt Gaetz, so I don't really want to attack him. But I don't really think that there's anything substantial happening uh, with the shutdown. They had an opportunity like a few weeks ago to actually insist on border security measures um, in a funding bill. They didn't put it in there. And now we see this situation that's happening. And they of course, they have averted a shutdown, likely because they are worried that if they have a shutdown, they're going to hurt the GOP's chances and the Virginia state Senate races th- this November, which they got, Republicans got hurt the last time they shut down the government in Virginia elections 10 years ago, actually. So they didn't really want to do that. And so they just went with this measure, but, um, I don't know They they, maybe they can do have a do over again with, and I guess it's 45 days spending a, you know, stopgap. Maybe they can insist on a border security measures, which is really the only thing that makes this anything important. And that would be after the elections. So maybe they'll have more opportunity, but I, I don't know. Most likely they'll sign another stupid like uh, kicking the can down the road spending thing that and there's no real concessions from Democrats. I mean, that's a problem when you have a bare uh, razor thin majority in the House and no majority in the Senate is that you're beholden to these forces that you can't really control. And... I mean the most you can do is just try to unseat McCarthy, which is what Matt Gates wants to do, but I don't even really know what the point of that is. And it doesn't seem unlike in January where Republicans were united, you know, there was a substantial number of Republicans united against against McCarthy unless he gave concessions. I don't really see it now and you have even a lot of conservatives uh, attacking Gates over this, over his resolution to get rid of McCarthy. Um probably not going to go well for for gates and even if they get rid of mccarthy who else are they going to get and it's like is this guy going to be better to deliver on these conservative promises no like this is it's just going to be the same thing it's just that these guys have personal animosities for mccarthy which is fine i i can understand why they hate mccarthy but um McCarthy is not to blame for their current situation, which is having a razor thin majority where you have these horrible moderates who want to have an amnesty deal and don't want to go along with what the conservatives want and you have to depend on them for votes and they control a lot of what the Republican Party can do. And, you know, McCarthy isn't really in a powerful situation or doesn't really have the situation to force them what to do, because a lot of what he would want them to do would hurt them in their elections. So they would be like, no, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to get elected next year if I sign up for this. So it's a it's a messy situation. I don't want to sound too libtarded, but it is there is a truth to it that, you know, a lot of these conservative members are incentivized to you just make these public declarations and promise the impossible to their followers in Congress. I mean, in some ways you can be like, well, what else are they going to do? That's true. But I think even in this budget fight, the original budget fight, if these guys conservatives had come together and said, we want border security in this bill, they could have gotten it in and they didn't do that. Instead, they later on just had these like tough talking promotions and and activity claiming that they're ready for the fight and mccarthy's not there and and truth to be told like like they don't have the ability to do what a lot of they want to accomplish and it's not even that popular for the stuff and it's also one thing is about these fights is that everyone has always portrayed this Going back to McCarthy, you know, the battle over him becoming speaker, they've always been treated as the establishment versus the populace. Is that the House Freedom Caucus and those guys are fighting for populist issues while the establishment is fighting for business first issues? And that's really not the case. I mean, the guys uh, who are waging war against McCarthy from a conservative perspective, it's boilerplate Tea Party stuff. It's all about government spending and entitlements and that stuff. I remember in the first uh, budget fight, you know, they didn't even bring up the border, you know, in the spring. That that was not an issue at all. They didn't bring up the border at all. It was just all about government spending and debt. And it's like you could have taken a time machine back to 2013 as the same shit the Tea Party was talking about then. And when there are wars with John Boehner and people like that, it was the same stuff. There is no new populist element to it. But a lot of these guys who, which we'll go into uh, later on about populism and right wing populism, is that they'll just say like, oh, any type of anti-establishment attitude is populist. So that's what we're going to be about. And it's really just standard Tea Party stuff about limited government and government spending and the debt. And it's like, that's not really what Trump uh, (laughs) campaigned on. And then, you know, this time there's a lot more border security. But once again, they didn't, you know, when they had the opportunity to put this stuff in there, they didn't. They instead went to PR stunts afterwards to say like, oh, they're failing to do the border. But it's, you know. They, they missed their opportunity. And it's about a lot of it is like negotiation. But I mean, Republicans due to the fact that, I mean, I am repeating myself, so I'll move on to other topics. They do have a thin majority. They have a ton of uh, cucks. Will you, we'll bring back that old term. Cucks like Don Bacon and others who, you know, they don't want to vote for anything good. And unfortunately, their vote is dependent on this. And. But they know that if they vote for a lot of stuff, I think the border stuff they would vote for, because I mean, even, you know, moderate districts are fed up with the immigration, but other things they can't really get on, they can't really push them to do. It's like the impeachment battle, uh, which, you know, they had a hearing last week, which didn't seem to really go well for Republicans uh, or as well as expected. You know, they had these moments for Republicans to grill and stuff and highlight these issues. But Democrats really did just, you know, they really did turn it into a theater for themselves. And they knew that MSNBC and CNN would highlight their best moments. They had a black congresswoman who had a very magical rant about how much Joe Biden loves his son. And she was like, you know, I don't know this. And y'all having this outrageous Joe Biden loves his son. I can't believe what you're doing, and I'm sure her and uh, the new uh, Senator LaFonza are going to get along great, uh, even though they're in different chambers. I'm sure they'll <laughs> they'll make it even more magical. Uh, so that <laughs> they've made it into just like undermining these claims. I mean, there are serious accusations too. Biden, but it is showing that Democrats can, due to the fact that media favorability is on their side, and they can just say, this is a whole lot of nonsense, this is just about a son, you know, he loves his son, his son, you know, he's not accountable for what his son does. And Republicans, you know, they do need more of a smoking gun for this case uh, to make the impeachment. But even for like the impeachment, it's like, you know, Democrats keep saying, Hold a vote. Hold a vote. The reason why they say hold a vote is because they know Republicans don't have the votes to impeach Biden. They probably are never going to have the votes to impeach Biden. And if they do have a vote, it's just going to fail. Because there's all these moderates who won't vote for it. They, and they know that, you know, they think that it'll hurt them in their elections in 2024. Of course, there's a lot of reasons to impeach Biden namely the border, but they don't want to go over border because they think that dereliction of duty is not a good precedent to set. So they instead want to focus on Hunter Biden, which it's like serious stuff. But due to media coverage of it and, you know, the fact that there's really that kind of missing piece that even though there's like these emails and there's some acknowledgement of Biden and him sitting on these meetings, you know, they don't really have that smoking gun to say proof. Very uh, guilty beyond any reasonable doubt. This is him. This is it. And they don't really have that. And for a lot of voters, they're just like shrug their shoulders. It's kind of like the massive amount of corruption going on with Menendez. You know, people just like shrug their shoulders at it. And they're just like. Whatever you know, I don't. We, we really don't seem to are bothered by this as much. And it's even the same with like Trump's first impeachment. Like people didn't really give a shit about the Ukraine thing. The only difference is is that then they ha- the Democrats had the media on their side pushing this, and they had the votes um, already lined up to vote for that impeachment. Here, Republicans are never going to have the votes unless, as I've said before, unless there's some like email where Biden is like. Here are state secrets to sell to China, Hunter. And unless they find something like that, they're never going to have the votes to impeach Biden. And they're never going to have like, the real push to make this impeachment there. So the impeachment inquiry is just something they're giving the base because the base wants it. But they also want to avoid the embarrassment of having a vote on it or actually having direct action on it. To because they know that's going to end a failure and that's just going to be a bad optics for them. It's like very bad standing to say like we tried to do an impeachment and then we failed and then they owned us and then they can take a victory lap and they could just show the Republicans don't care about governing. They just care about these uh, stunts and other things and and impeaching our great president and they could run with that. And so. That's really what the Republicans are. But for a lot of Republicans, all they primarily care about for a lot of them, uh, they primarily care about stunts. And part of that is that they just can't get any real legislation through outside of making a smart stand on these budget fights, which they're uh, not really doing so much anymore. But going along with this is, uh, you know, another point. Uh, I wasn't actually planning on talking about this much, but now we're uh, we're getting in the flow. So I am actually have some more things to talk about Congress. And it's mainly how Congress is getting more magical. There was the congresswoman last week who had a rant uh, during the impeachment inquiry hearing. That's Texas Rep. Jasmine Crockett, who said, he only guilty of loving his son unconditionally. Y'all need to recognize that. And the whole here. Hearing- It's just like embarrassing. It's like, imagine just sitting there as a, as, as like a, you know, expert at this panel and you're sitting there and you're like, yo, I can't believe this. Yo, you know, we, we love our president. Trump is more guilty. Look at how he's been handling classified evidence. You can't believe this. And you're just sitting there and you're like, what type of shit is going on in Congress with this woman going, I be talking about this. And so you have Jasmine Crockett, lots of magic there. Then Jamal Bowman added some more magic uh, this weekend when he uh, pulled a fire alarm for <laughs> Fernando Say he's trying to open an emergency exit. And he's like, oh, I thought it was a door opener. <laughs> and the, the thing is, is like Bowman... I don't know. The thing is, like the funny thing is, is that we're basically acknowledging that this guy is not very smart if we're gonna believe his story. I don't believe Bowman is that stupid. I'm gonna believe that. I don't know why he pulled the like the dumber thing is that he's like, oh, I can stop this vote. They ain't gonna catch me if by pulling the fire alarm. It's like there are video cameras everywhere in like every corridor of the Capitol. Where where do you think? Do you think people are not going to catch you? And he first denied it, like I didn't do that. And he also has some great moments. He's like, "Yo, these Republicans, they ain't got no swag." You know, he said that at like some press conference. I find Bowman very entertaining, so I'm glad he's in. Uh, I'm glad he's in Congress. Uh, but he's there. He one time got in an argument with uh, Thomas Massey, where he's like, "Yo, put up, get out of my face!" And he's there and. But he's pulling the fire alarm, and now we're all supposed to believe it's like a serious act. it's like an honest accident. It's like that's nowhere the case. I worked in the Capitol 10 years ago. I interned it was one of the first things I did when I came up in DC. And I remember those doors and stuff. And it's like, it's very clear that these are not, you know, you're not trying to exit. You know, there's a the big like sign outs like this is an emergency exit. They all were showing this. It's like to any reasonable person, you know, maybe not Jamal Bowman is a reasonable person. You go in there and you say, uh, obviously, this is uh, not a place you want to exit. You know, it's very clear that it's like you you don't go out this door. And Bowman has been a congressman for a while now. I think, he you know, he was elected in 2020. Um, he's been on the Hill, you know, for years now. He would know that this is not it. I think he generally thought that he would just pull the fire alarm to stop the hearing and that this would work, which is probably even more magical thinking. You know, it's like a kid wanting to get out an exam in college who calls like a bomb threat. He just pulls the fire alarm and he's like, oh, no one will catch me. But he's like doing this in the most heavily surveilled area, arguably in the world and definitely in America. And he's just like, oh, no one's going to catch me. But then it's like he could just get away with this because he's like, oh, honest mistake. And they're like, oh, I guess you're just naturally an idiot. <laughs> so, But both both explanations are just showing he's a complete moron. But I'm glad Jamal, Representative Jamal is there. So we got Representative Jasmine, uh, Representative Jamal. And now we've got Senator Lafonza joining, the, joining along with the team. So Governor Newsom, Gavin Newsom, who everyone's wondering if he's going to run for president. Um, I don't think he is. Um, Well, he might. That might be a topic. We may have a completely different uh, uh, article or um, podcast today that was originally hit record here uh, based on things that are coming up. But Gavin Gavin Newsom appointed LaFonza Butler to replace Dianne Feinstein, who died uh, last week. I mean, that was a huge shocker. that she died, but, uh, you know, one of the funny things is that people were like, Oh, this is so tragic. It's like, Diane Feinstein was not like good person. It's like, you know, you shouldn't revel, revel in, in their death, but you know, it's not like I'm going to be sad. And she's also 90 and she refused to retire. And she like hobbled around on Capitol Hill. You know, I am surprised that they weren't like tra- calling about how, cog- how cognitively, uh, with it, she was as they do with Biden. But her death does like highlight the problems with Biden too. Uh, you know, she's only um, nine years older than Biden, um, and you know Biden is in much better physical health. But you know, mental health—you know—he's not that far away from that uh, condition of Diane Feinstein. But anyway, you know, he had to appoint someone to Diane Feinstein's position, and he had made a pledge that it has to be a black woman. And they were insisting it had to be a black woman. And there's a black woman running for Senate. And he called Gavin Newsom a racist for not appointing her, even though he said specifically that he will not appoint any of the people running for in the Democratic primary. And this Democrat didn't like it. And she went off. And the media also celebrated, like, oh, the white privilege of Gavin Newsom for not appointing this woman. But he had already made it very clear that he wasn't going to appoint this because he's like, he didn't want to put his finger on the scale of the Democratic primary. So he went along with uh, Miss Lafonza, Miss Butler, um, which is, you know, she doesn't even appear to live in California. (laughs) But there's so they have so few options for black women. It's like. The ideal person they appoint for stuff is black women. It's like Katanji Brown on the Supreme Court and elsewhere. They are they have to find black women, but there are so few black women to appoint for these positions that they're like, who do we turn to? It's like when Biden, you know, Biden had to get a woman. But then when black lives matter happened, he had to get a black woman. You know, it was everyone thought that Amy Klobuchar was going to be the pick. I thought it was going to be Amy Klobuchar, but then George Floyd died and it turned out Amy Klobuchar had went easy on Derek Chauvin many years ago in a case. And she was obviously eliminated and he had to go with a black woman. But it was obviously going to be Kamala because... All the others were just like random mayors and congresswomen and they had to get somebody of real stature. So they went with Kamala and Kamala turns out to be one of the most unlikable politicians in America, which is why they have these problems with replacing Biden is that they don't have, you know, somebody there to uh, push him through. Or rather, they don't have like an easy person to turn to is like, OK, we're not going to have a competitive primary you know, we're going to have an anointed figure. It's the vice president, which is one of the reasons why that it's like tough for Biden to uh, push out is they don't really have an easy mechanism for getting rid of him, And they want to avoid a competitive primary with featuring like 12 people. Um, you know, they're really wanting to avoid that. And they, but they don't want Kamala either. So they're, they're in a little bit of a conundrum here. But, you know, it's back to black women. So he's had to appoint a black woman for VP. That's how we end up with Kamala. Uh, for the Supreme Court justice position, it was so obviously Katanji because there was like hardly any black women that were at a stature that was needed to be that replacement. It was literally just Katanji. So they went with Ketanji. And here, they had literally no one to appoint besides like some of these congress this congressman running for uh, the Senate, Which is just Barbara Lee. You know, Karen Bass is now the mayor of Los Angeles, and she doesn't want to give up her position that she just won in L.A. to take on Senate. So she, you know, he's limited in his options, so he just went with the president of Emily's list to be a senator. And it's like, uh, this is usually who you don't appoint, but he was just, like, desperate for somebody. And he's like, I don't think this woman's going to run. I don't think Senator LaFonza is going to run for Senate. She's not going to jump in the Senate race, so... You know, all the people in the Senate race can figure it out on their own, which is like Adam Schiff, Katie Porter, Barbara Lee and a few others who are running in that race. You know, it's uh, they can have all those people figure it out. But they were still demanding that Barbara Lee, but he he had to appoint a black woman. But this is literally the only black woman he could find. So they're just like appointing of that. So they're just going to keep finding random black women because that is like the ideal identity politics uh, standings that they want is like black women. And they worship black women in a a way that is hard to comprehend for other people because it is they truly are have that black girl magic. And there's a lot of culture around that from like celebrities that they admire and they worship as semi divine figures from like Beyonce to Lizzo. And they just like black women save democracy. They always say that after every election. And they really are enthralled to them when, you know, most of these women don't meet the, um, <laughs> the myth that they propound. And then they have this stuff that's going on uh, with them, but they don't turn out to be what they're, you know, the magic doesn't exist. It's like, look at Kamala. Look at these others. I mean, they generally don't reach that level. I mean, Stacey Abrams, they were also enthralled with and and, and worship, but she, uh, she couldn't win a race. And they would love to have had Stacey Abrams as a national figure, but they won't. I, I don't think... You know, it's going to be very tough for... I, I really don't think we're going to have a female president for a long time. You know, 2028 is a long way. I, I actually... I could eat my words very quickly if... Something happens to Biden and Kamala becomes president. And if somehow Biden wins a second term, actually, we probably will have a female president. It's uh, I would say it's about a 50 50 chance that Biden doesn't make it to the end, you know, due to health problems. I mean, he is going to be in his 80s. He's already has problems. And it's like these people can just suddenly die one day. I mean, when you're that age, it 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 happens. You could be re- reasonably healthy and stuff. And then you have like a stroke or a heart attack or just something. Something just happens and you, you know, you're, you're dead or you're incapacitated. You, know, you can't no longer be present, but they probably would still do something. I don't know if he is like can't move around and stuff. If he has like a Woodrow Wilson moment, I think it's harder to hide a Woodrow Wilson moment in modern America, and for those who don't know, Woodrow Wilson had a serious stroke in 1919 when he was campaigning for the League of Nations, and he was confined to a bed, could not be president, really couldn't do anything as president, could barely sign his name, and his wife and a secretary uh, became uh, the president, (laughs) the real president of the United States, and were really running the country. And even though he had a serious stroke that insured he couldn't really walk around he recovered enough to have meetings and stuff but he was not in good shape and he definitely couldn't campaign he still wanted to run for president and democrats learned of how bad his health was and then they went with somebody else and he was pissed off about it um i think one of his his secretary who helped him uh pretend he was still president when he was at the worst part of his stroke uh was one of the ones who told Democrats like, yeah, he's not in good health, and he turned him into a mortal enemy. Anyway, that's that aside. I don't. You couldn't. The, Biden couldn't get away with another Woodrow Wilson moment because we're, you know, we have twenty four seven cable news. Like the fact that like Biden is just like hiding, uh, and it's even like with FDR. You know, FDR could hide that you know he couldn't walk and stuff, but you have the president walking along the lawn of the White House all the time, walking to his helicopter, walking off a plane. If it's like him, people would just see him in a wheelchair being wheeled into that and them having to do these new uh, handicap uh, precautions for him. So it wouldn't work. But anyway, that aside, I think it would be very tough for us to have a female president. We just don't. Maybe it's the type of women who rise to power in America that they're just like so unlikable. And there are better options, and that other women don't really want to vote for them for various reasons. They either think that they're like a hussy, or just like a total bitch, like Amy Klobuchar. They're not warm and friendly, and we don't really have types like they have in Europe, like the Angela Merkel. Who Angela Merkel was like a you know full-on technocrat. I Merkel did terrible things, but you can easily see how she could be a leader. You know, it's like somebody that. You could see is like competent and stuff and she's like ugly and whatever, but she could be like somebody to be a leader or somebody like Margaret Thatcher. Margaret Thatcher was highly competent, very smart, and she utilized her sex appeal to manipulate men. A lot of these women try to do that like Nikki Haley, but Nikki Haley is a moron, Uh, like basically a much dumber Margaret Thatcher. So is some of these other uh, candidates. Uh, who also with that, um, who try to be Republicans like Christy Nome um and others. They really aren't as smart. Republicans, the main problem with the female candidates is that they're really not very bright. And they come off as like not getting it in a way that male Republicans can. The only real exception is Carrie Lake, who if she does, she's planning to win, run for Senate. If she wins her Senate race, which, you know, there's tough odds against her. But she can still do that. And if she wins her Senate race, I would probably say she would be the favorite for 2028. And she could maybe win. But So maybe I'm actually having to re- reconfigure that. The only... Maybe we could have a female president, but I don't think it'll come for the Democrats. Democrats prefer a Chad white guy as their preference. Even though that's different from their stated preferences. But their revealed preferences say... Otherwise, it's like what they want is a tall, good looking white guy who exudes an air of authority and is like, I'm in business. They like that about Biden as he had this paterfamilias, this this respectable grandpa who you listen to, even though he really doesn't meet that image. People thought of him as that image and they wanted that. They want like a alpha white guy. You may Biden in his younger years was an alpha white guy. I mean, yes, that doesn't make him a good person. Yes, that doesn't excuse all the things, but they like that. And they really like that in Gavin Newsom. And they've liked that in Bill, Bill Clinton in some ways. You know, they want this type of authority, this guy who takes charge and defends minorities and women from evil racist Republicans. And that is a large part of the appeal of Gavin Newsom is that he is a guy that these white women want to have as their boyfriend or husband and definitely want to sleep with. And I don't think that's with Biden so much, but they think of him as like their elderly grandpa who gives them advice and tells them what to do. And they like that for their party with Newsom—it's more their husband or boyfriend fantasy. They had a similar with Beto, but Beto really didn't exude that authority, and he's a little bit too dorky. While Newsom is like much more alpha and Chad, which does give him a lot of support among uh, women in the Democratic Party, and women are an important part of the Democratic Party. With white women and black women have different interests, but they both white and black women determine who's the can the determine who's the nominee and newsom may have some trouble with black women but i think he can overcome that i think black women really don't like a lot of these white women who run because they remind them of karen's they remind them of these women who are uh asking for basic customer service at the store they're working at it's like very much with amy klobuchar like amy klobuchar you know, I don't really like the Karen meme, but she is very much of like, let me speak to your manager and like chewing them out. And black women really don't like that. And that's why they didn't go for any of the women like Kirsten Gillibrand and all these other and Elizabeth Warren, because they just struck them as these uppity white women who they've had to deal with all their lives. And they really don't like that. Now, when they have like a nice, good looking black, white guy who's like, oh, he's so cute. I love that he coming to our church and talking to us. Oh. He knows what we want, and you know if they can do that, they'll like that. They also don't like Buttigieg because they 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 find him a weirdo (laughs) for obvious reasons. And uh, you know they they like Kamala because she represents them, but they you know they realize she's not like them because one she's half Indian, half Jamaican. She's not um, she's not FBA as uh, foundational Black American as Tariq Nasheed would say. So they depend on a lot on that, and it's also the so they have that interest that they want some like nice upstanding man. They would love probably a black man to run, but there's like so few of those candidates, like a nice upstanding black man who is a hundred percent straight. That's probably the biggest issue with with black candidates running is that they're a hundred percent straight and he's like reasonably intelligent and they see him as like the nice young man that they wish they had as a son. Uh, They saw that a little bit in Obama, even though there was some like tension there with like that. But they don't really have that so much. There's the governor of Maryland who could be like that. Hopefully he doesn't have uh, Andrew Gillum skeletons in his closet. But that's also another thing is like black women knew Gillum was something was up with him because in the 2000 or the 2018 election, black women went surprisingly well for DeSantis and you're like people are like oh it must have been school choice or something that could have been it but uh, all Republicans stand for school choice there had to be something else and they definitely sensed that Gillum was gay and did not like that and they had that said the black woman must have sensed that out so that would be their ideals like a nice young black man coming to him like just a Jesse Jackson figure um, Maybe he's not the most respectable type, but they really want somebody's like I could see him as my son or my nice brother or something like that. With white women, they want like the boyfriend, husband fantasy, especially because single white women are a huge part of the coalition, and that's why they like Beto, they like Newsom. Uh, with Biden, it's more grandfather, dad than that, but that's like a huge part of that, and that has to appeal. And really, for Democrats, it's mostly going to be str- uh, straight men. It could be a black male, depending on what happens with this Maryland governor. He has the identity p- qualifications for it. He has a pretty good amount of charisma. Uh, he just needs to avoid Andrew Gillum <laughs> pitfalls, and he probably would be a top tier candidate. But the other candidates that would be, you know, strongly positioned in a in a Democratic primary, say in 2024 or 2028, now it would be Josh Shapiro uh, from Pennsylvania. Even though he's really short, he he talks like Obama. He has a strong degree of charisma. He's a smart political operator, governor of a big state, big, uh, you know, battleground state. That gives him uh, qualifications. There's um, Bashir and... In, in, um, in Kentucky who might be a little bit too moderate to win, but he can't say I won in a red state. Uh, then he's also has this kind of um, alpha white guy uh, vibe to him. Then there's Gretchen Whitmer, um, which I have a feeling Gretchen Whitmer would have problems in a democratic primary for what I stated before is that black women find her as a Karen. She's like the ultimate Karen or ultimate awful, as I'd rather say. I don't think she would win over black women at all or black voters and minority voters. She would just be for girl bosses. And there is a limited path to victory for that type of person, as Liz Warren and Amy Globuchar showed in 2020. And then there's obviously Newsom. And there's a few others, too, who could be uh, serious candidates. People say Warnock could be a serious candidate. I don't know how serious that could be, but... You know, if they really want like a Chad uh, black guy, you know, who's definitely straight, (laughs) Warnock is there. And, you know, he did win in a red state twice, uh, you know, battleground state twice. So maybe he could be it. Uh, That would be horrible imagining him as president. But, you know, just going through the uh, possibilities here. They would love a black woman, but that black woman that they want to vote for, essentially a Michelle Obama, is not going to run. People keep bringing up to me is like, do you think Michelle Obama is going to run? Do you, uh, what about Michelle Obama? And conservatives love this Michelle Obama is not going to run for president. She doesn't even, she is insanely thin skinned. She, it was incredible, it was clear when Brock was running in 2008, it, even by clear by 2007, that Michelle Obama did not like the political campaign cycle. She did not like the criticism. She was getting really heated over it and bothered by it. And it was well known in the media that, uh, um, she was not taking well to this, especially probably in compared to other first ladies. She was the most bothered by the limelight and criticism that was faced by their husband and by criticism of her. And if she ran, Republicans or conservative media would be demanding her birth certificate to prove that she's a woman <laughs> be the different birth certificate. You know, it's like we needed to prove Obama was born in the United States. Now they want to have birth certificate for Michelle Obama being born a woman, which at first, this is like a funny internet beam. And, um, you know, in the past, like people were, you know, it was only like, really out there websites that would talk about this but this is so common among conservative influencers and their audience now fully believes this stuff i'm sure most of my audience believes this um i'm gonna i know you, you call me a cuck but i actually believe michelle obama was born a woman <laughs> uh, this is a huge uh, thing um uh, I just have I'm just gonna say that opinion, but yeah, she does have some rather masculine features. I think it is like it is uh humorous, some of the memes and stuff, so I don't have a problem with it. But you know, conservatives would absolutely demand there would be a you know, in the same way there was a birtherism around her husband, there'd be birtherism around her to prove that she's a, a woman. And she would hate that. She already doesn't like the criticism. And to have like conservative media fixating on how she's a man First off, most women would hate that, but she would especially hate that, and she would lose it. And so she would never want to run for president. She doesn't like the limelight. She doesn't like criticism. She isn't even really that a political creature. She is not Hillary Clinton. Of course, if she ran, she would probably get the nomination, but she doesn't want to deal with that shit. And she there, there's never going to be a way to push her into this. She's not a political creature, and she does not live for politics like Hillary Clinton. She really doesn't like the arena. Some people say Oprah Winfrey. Same story. I mean, well, it's a different story. I don't think people would be demanding uh, Oprah's birth certificate to prove she's a woman. Uh, But she also doesn't want to deal with that bullshit. She likes being a universally liked figure. She, uh, She likes that type of stature. She's much older now. She's in her 70s now, I believe. So she doesn't really want to run for president either. And so they don't really have that black woman figure. And Stacey Abrams won, lost twice, rather. And so she's eliminated and Kamala has the worst likability of any vice president in modern history. So they don't really have that candidate. They would love a black woman candidate because like, white women worship them, uh, black girl magic. Black women obviously want someone like them to be their candidate, but they don't have that person. I mean, if Ketanji Brown Jackson ran for office, if she, for some reason she left the Supreme Court to run for president, she would probably be the nominee. I think she would be a strong candidate, but she would never do that. She would never leave the Supreme Court. Why would you leave this incredibly powerful position that you have guaranteed for life for something that you're only going to have for at most eight years? It's not guaranteed you win it, and you have to go through that stuff. And I also don't think she likes the um, political arena either. Uh, maybe not so much as Michelle Obama, but she doesn't want to go through a presidential race either. So they're very limited in who they can have to have the leaders. And that was very clear when Biden was trying to pick a candidate or be, pick a vice president. And he was stuck with Kamala and these random mayors. So I had a ton of topics that I was going to go on a completely different, uh, IQ, <laughs> highly respected podcast I was going to do today. And I have instead talked about um, possibilities for uh, Twenty Democrats and Congress and just going off on that, so I may have to have an IQ supplement on what I was actually going to talk about. Well, I am writing an article about um, some of what I was planning on discussing, but it was uh, going to be about populism and uh, that stuff. I said earlier it's like we'll go into the populist element uh, with Republicans, but um, no, you just have to read the article. I've I, I, we're having we're we're under time constraints here, so. We're just going to focus on the Democrat political aspirations and future stuff. And we'll get into a few other stuff before I get to the elite questions. But going into what everyone is thinking, will Biden drop out? And, you know, when people are saying Michelle Obama will run. As I already said, it's not going to be Michelle Obama. Um, so who would take that place? I mean, Gavin Newsom is trying to put himself forward. To say, like, hey, if anything happens to Biden, I'm in the public limelight. Like, I'm doing this debate with DeSantis. He, you know, vetoed a trans, you know, a bill, a trans bill in California that everyone expected him to sign because it's like fully supported by liberals. He vetoed a bill that would essentially take away a parent's custody over a child if they disagreed with uh, the transitioning or they had issues with that. He vetoed that bill. That was very surprising. And people are like, he has national aspirations. He's trying to make himself moderate. And just last week, he vetoed a bill to give striking workers unemployment benefits, which goes against like the labor focus, but also makes him look very much more moderate. So he's definitely positioning himself to say, if Biden drops out, I'm here to run. I'm here to run for the nomination. And he's coming off as much more moderate than he is. And it's like his big debate that he's doing with DeSantis. So he's definitely positioning himself. Josh Shapiro is also going into New Hampshire and I think Iowa to also make some moves there. And Gretchen Whitmer is also in a position to run for office. But Democrats really don't want that primary. And also it would be so late in the process of doing it that I don't think there will be. And also I don't know if there's a mechanism to push Biden out. Like there... I think Joe Biden could convince him, but Joe Biden wants to stay in the White House. And Joe wants to stay in the White House, too. You know, Joe, you know, once you get senile in that age, like they think that they're in perfect health and they are perfectly operational. But it's very clear from Democrats that there's issues with Biden. The fact that he hasn't taken any, he doesn't take questions anymore. He's walking and his walking isn't as good as it was. He's falling down in public ceremonies. He's losing his train of thought. He's repeating stories he just told a few minutes earlier. He is definitely in severe decline. And he was already had major health problems in 2020. And thankfully, COVID helped him out and ensured that he didn't have to campaign that heavily. But in 2024, even with like a COVID-like schedule, he couldn't even... Uh, be that inspiring of a candidate, and the fact that his like poll numbers are so bad compared to Trump, and Trump is under four indictments. Um, you know they're like uh, we may need to have another candidate, but they don't really have quite the mechanism to push him out. Now there is this stuff about Hunter Biden that they may try to find more dirt on Hunter Biden, and the deep state's like, look, you can pardon your son, but we want you to not run again. And that's still possible, but I think he has a, this is, has a narrow window to happen. If he is still running or still a candidate in December and no real candidates have challenged him in the democratic primary, he's going to be the nominee. He's just going to be the nominee. Unless for some reason he like has a health crisis and he can't run. That is possible, but I don't know if that's likely. And it's not a given that Gavin, but let's say like Biden announces sometime before the end of the year that he's actually reconsidered and he's not running. Then there's going to be a free for all for running. I don't, everyone thinks that Gavin Newsom is a shoe in, but I don't think he is the shoe in uh, for the nomination. You know, uh, I think Gretchen Whitmer would definitely get in, is definitely going to get in, Buttigieg may get in, Newsom is definitely going to get in. And, you know, there's probably some other possibilities that could also jump in into that race. And, you know, he is in a strong position. I do think that compared to who he would be running against, he'd probably be in the best position. I would still probably bet on him running and winning. But it's also not guaranteed that he would perform better in a general election than Biden. Because he is running like, you know, a problem child state a state that everyone is fleeing a state that has high crime high taxes just a ton of problems he doesn't have a lot of record to say like how awesome california is he does have a lot of far left stances um that he's been a part of you know is he's, he's black flipped he you know he's flip-flopped on a little bit on it. reparations but there's a lot of material for republicans to run against him And he doesn't just have, you know, one thing about Biden is Biden just seemed unthreatening because he was just like your nice, respectable grandpa who you, you know, offers like warm hearted advice to you. Newsom has a little bit more of a threatening allure to him. And that could push moderates in another direction and voting for Republicans. So he's not also guaranteed that he would do better than Biden in a general election. So that's maybe one reason that Democrats may just keep Biden. But I think the main reason is that they don't have a mechanism for kicking him out. No Democrat wants to serious Democrat wants to primary him because the whole argument is like he's senile and is old and can't walk anymore. And people, you know, have a type of sense of respect and politeness that they don't want to do. And there's even a Democrat who is in leadership who is saying, like, we need to have another guy move forward. And Democrats kicked him out of leadership. Because they don't know the real problems of Biden they don't want to they don't want to attack Biden's record because they feel that that is what the Democrats' record is, and it would just be all personal and they don't want to acknowledge that he's senile and that's why I don't think you're gonna see somebody challenge him in the primary openly they'd have they're hoping that he just doesn't run which um I don't know what mechanism that would be happen, but I think if he's still there at the end of the year and if no one has bothered to challenge him because they're also running out on deadlines to get in the race you know bloomberg got in really late in 2020 i think he got in in december or january and so that's like the last possible time for somebody to get in and we'll see but i think if he hasn't dropped out by december unless they're Democrats realize it's really bad and they just donors and establishment figures tell Newsom or somebody else to like, please run. And you just run. And he runs a campaign just saying, like, we love Biden, but one term is enough. And it's very polite, respectable campaign. And he essentially runs as the guy and they quietly push out Biden through this primary. Then maybe that's the scenario. But we'll have to see. Last point on like the election is that the immigration issue is becoming really bad for Democrats. I mean, it's expected that September border crossing numbers were the highest on record, 260,000, which is just insane. And this also doesn't account for all the would-be illegals who are coming in legally, which is I heard the numbers that uh, through the sea. C- bp1 app it was over it was nearly 45,000 there's also the 30,000 that come in through the parole program and like another 10,000 that come in through other ways so it could be like upwards of 100,000 would-be illegals but at least 75,000 otherwise would-be illegals are coming in and likely 85,000 to 100,000 would-be illegals on top of the 260,000 migrants we encounter at the border and that's just the ones we caught. So most likely comp- tallying up the figures for the and the gotaways, you know, it has to be at least 50 to 60,000 gotaways. So it's well over a 400,000 migrants uh, who came into this country last month. <laughs> and that's uh that's insane numbers obviously and this is the Democrat cities really can't handle these issues anymore. And it's even like Kathy Hochul is now like uh, we need border security, which is like a huge deal for Democrats that any of them admit we need any type of border security. And she's like, we need a limit who's coming in. It's like, well, we're supposed to do that. But obviously we're not. And this issue isn't going to go away. And I think immigration, uh, along with maybe economic problems, that even if Trump is convicted in next year which I think it's I used to say it was like a 50% chance of getting him getting convicted I think it's pretty likely he gets convicted of something um, they're moving along the Fulton County you know he's not he's keeping it in Fulton County the his his indictment there likely would be convicted by a jury there I don't think he can delay uh, all their, his other trials I mean his best bet is delaying all these trials which is still possible. Um, so he avoids uh, a conviction that way, but I I don't know what Trump would do, but it's likely he gets convicted, and he could still win the race just by how bad the country is, and like how uh, out of touch Democrats will be on immigration and the economy, so it's that, but we're gonna have a very bizarre election, but Immigration is definitely going to be at least one of the top three issues. All the big issues, with the exception of abortion, are going to overwhelmingly favor Republicans. So, yes, we could even put Trump from a jail cell as the candidate and he would still win the election. It's not guaranteed. I think he he could still delay some of these trials, even with the Fulton County one, because they're trying to, you know, they're trying to try like 18 people. Uh, There are ways for Trump to delay that. Uh, further and it's and he still has ways to delay his other trials as well so and maybe if he is a presidential candidate you know the nominee he can further say like i'm running for president i can't deal with these trials and maybe that argument will work in a few of these cases so as long as he avoids conviction and we still have these troubles happening i would say it's even more 50 percent chance that he wins i think it's like his chances for winning as long as he avoids conviction or better than they were in 2020 and 2016. If he avoids conviction, if he uh, gets convicted, um, I am no longer saying it's impossible. I don't think it's impossible for him to win. It's going to be very difficult. Uh, I would probably put his chances a little bit less than 2016 and 2020, but I would still say he has a he has a decent chance. And depending on how the, who's he running against, how the state of the country, he can still win. Even if convicted. And, you know, we have to see how the polls are. There could be the crazy thing that, like, a conviction doesn't even affect his poll numbers. I think they will. But, like, his poll numbers are incredible right now. With four indictments. So, I don't know. Maybe a conviction won't make that much of a difference. And he is going to be the Republican nominee. I am more confident, Trump. I would... I'm confident that both Biden and Trump will be the nominees, but I'm more confident Trump will be the nominee for the Republican Party than Biden. I, It's pretty much 99% certain. I'll, I'll give it 95% certain that Trump is the nominee. Well, I say that it's 60% certain that Biden is the nominee for the Democratic Party. So that is uh, my percentages on that. So that's like a totally completely different subject I wanted to have um, just talk about the political situation and what's going on with Democrats. But I'll go to one thing uh, that I'll end on before we go to the Cotton League questions. And that's the UAW strike is that everyone's, uh, you know, awesome. This is like everyone's soyjacking over this. They're like, this is awesome. And everyone's trying to go to the picket lines. Uh, you know, Biden is on the picket lines, which people said it's like bad luck because, you know, you're supposed to have the president who's supposed to be neutral in this. And it's basically saying that the car companies like I'm fully on the side with UAW workers. I mean, 75 percent of the American public is on the side with UAW workers, likely due to uh, lack of education or, or ignorance on the topic. Trump even tried to get some of the stature of the UAW workers, but he even his rally wasn't really with them because the UAW workers actually hate Republicans. Oh, except that they would love Ron DeSantis, as Ron DeSantis's uh, supporters do. But it's not true. I mean, Ron DeSantis supports right to work, as does every Republican. Uh, so everyone's like backing these guys, but actually, I don't think people should be like awesome about UAW workers because one, uh, they're already probably overpaid for what they are. Everyone's like everyone deserves like a nice living and stuff, but it's like, you know, they they union workers, especially in the car companies, do make much more than like other workers in similar fields. And what they're demanding is just uh, outrageous because they're demanding a 32-hour work week, only working four days a week. Uh, and it's like, how are American car companies going to compete with that type of work schedule? And people are always saying, well, we need to help American workers build this stuff. It's like, you know, tons of Japanese car companies and German car companies now employ millions of Americans in their, in their plants here in the United States and they produce a better product than the american car companies and the reason why american car companies are producing an inferior product for that's more expensive is because of these union workers meanwhile like you know nissan has a plant uh, in tennessee and other places where it's right to work and they're building better better vehicles for more affordable prices and probably even a more, employing more americans than the UA, than the guys in detroit UAW fully supports mass immigration and amnesty, even though that may hurt their own workers. They just don't give a shit. Every union is totally on board for immigration. So it's like, what are they? You know, I don't. Everyone just sees like, oh, working class people. We're we're immediately for this. And you just have to say, it's like if they get all their demands, what they're going to do is it's going to push these companies to automate, or you know, the I don't, I don't support this, or try to push their plants out. Of America to where they can compete with the uh, Japanese and German car companies and others who are having their plants in right to work states where it's the costs are more affordable than in Detroit. So that's one that's going to be one effect of this. And if they just kept the cars where they are, and they kept their factories there, they're going to it's going to be more expensive cars inferior cars too because you know they don't have these workers working as much as they do and on on their competitors cars and you're just doing this so this is likely just going to lead to more layoffs and to a further decline in the american-owned car company market and it's like, is this awesome? Is this what we should be for? It's no, I don't think. I think people are a little bit too over the top about UAW workers. But everyone wants the, the feel that they're on the side of the working class and the white working class and these union workers. And everyone just starts soyjacking over it on the right. And even the and people don't want to be on the side of greedy businessmen. And people will see it's like, oh, their CEOs are making so much more money while their workers haven't gotten a raise. And I understand that, but it's also like. You know, if these demands are met, it's ultimately not going to be good for these workers long-term. It's going to be bad for them long-term, as though these companies will just invest in automation or shutting down plants because they can't compete against their other competitors. So I'm not really that much of a fan of union. the union strike actually, over time, have become so anti-union that even for unions i may have had some sympathy for and pre-2020 now i'm just like i don't you know learning more about the subject reading more about the subject you really i don't think that they really benefit america in the way they that we think they are and for a lot of these workers they want like you know they want those benefits assigned also to immigrants and who else is there i mean there's no allegiance to the historic american nation on part of these unions they just want demand more and more stuff from these declining car companies and other declining sectors of the American economy, which will just then put them out of work, but they don't think long term and how they can ensure that there are good jobs for more Americans. Long term, they just think of short term gain and everyone just stands with them, even though if their demands are met, that would be worse for the American consumer and worse for the American economy, but People don't—they don't want to be on the side of these companies, so which I understand. It's not like the car companies, the American uh, car companies, are really that great. But in this stance, you know, my—I—I'm with the minority. I stand with the car companies here. I think if they want to survive in the market, they—and they'll probably give in to some of their demands. But you know, I don't think. I think the car companies have a more reasonable position than the striking workers. I know a lot of people are going to get mad about that. And that's not the case in all situations, but a lot of these things and this was happening in 2021 too is that a lot of these more that these unions started striking because there was a labor shortage and they were exploiting the market or exploiting the present econ- economic situation to demand these out these over the top a request and they were expecting to get this and they were expecting a type of pay that is unreasonable i mean it even happened with ups i mean ups drivers are now making 170k a year due to the new you the demands that they did in negotiations which you know i you know ups workers are important but it's like 170k it's like wow that's uh that seems a little over the top for ups and that's also going to make shipping with ups and their services much more expensive for the average consumer and so there's always a price to pay for this it's not just that you pay these workers and you still have fast and affordable service it's likely going to be that more people turn to amazon and to other services where they're not treating their worker i mean there are a lot of problems with amazon drivers and stuff but Ultimately, that's what consumers choose and you do have to acknowledge what how the market works in a lot of ways rather than pretending we're all going to be making $200,000 while people are then willingly paying for this stuff because they're helping the American people. And a lot of times you're not helping someone like you. You're helping, you know, just a new immigrant or, you know, the magic community and other things with this or recent, you know, naturalized immigrants with these type of jobs. It's no longer that you're quite helping the white working class anymore, as the white working class is disappearing. It's still there with UAW, but that's a white working class in decline, as that they're being replaced by a new working class that's much more colorful and multiracial, as conservatives love to say. And it's hard to say that you wanna pay an astronomical price for these services, and you're saying like, well, you're helping Americans. And then you see the delivery driver and you're like, oh, well, maybe I'm not helping the quite the Americans I thought of. And that's always something to keep in mind with some of this economic nationalism talk and economic populism talk that comes out. It's like people imagine that they're helping people like them. But in a lot of ways, these policies encourage more immigration to this country and help people who are replacing us rather than helping the people we think we're helping so that's just something to keep in mind but now on to the con elite questions as a reminder you too can get the power to ask me questions or suggest guests and topics if you sign up for the con elite option at highly respected Substack. and that's at highly respected dot dot com and make sure to sign up for the iq supplements while you're there So the first question comes from FH, and I accidentally missed this because it was asked in a comment thread, so I I unfortunately missed it last week. It came in right in the nick of time, but I should have said it, and he asked... Hi, Scott. Conservative influencers on Twitter often speculate about who would be the best VP candidate for Trump. And the most popular responses seem to include Carrie Lake, Tim Scott, Chrissy Noem, Byron Donalds, Nikki Haley, MTG, etc. Is Trump picking one of those names something to worry about, in your opinion? And who would make your list of the strongest VP candidates for Trump when taking in town both electoral odds and policy? Well, he has. I know this is cringe, but he has said that he's likely to pick a woman or a minority I don't think there's the good news is I don't think there's a minority candidate that he would pick. Tim Scott would be the only likely person, but Tim Scott does not defend him on election stuff or even what's happening with him in January six, so he probably not pick Tim Scott. Vivek is maybe a possibility, but Vivek he really he really wants to pick somebody from the Republican establishment who the party respects and sees as a leader and that person is not Vivek. Uh, I mean, he doesn't even hold an elected position. Maybe he could do that if he decides that no one else will be his VP, but there's a lot of women who are eager to be his VP. Carrie Lake is going to run for Senate, most likely, and she did not win her race um, in 2022, and I think that made Trump not want to pick her. I think if she had won the governor race, she would be the front runner for the position, but she's not. And she's going to be focused on running for the Senate. And I think Trump is aware of that. And she just would rather run for Senate than be the VP. So MTG is not going to pick MTG. He's not going to pick Nikki Haley either, as he is clearly showing his uh, uh, open disdain for Nikki Haley. He's not going to pick someone he's hate. The two most likely candidates are Christy Nome. And at least Stefanik. Uh, neither one of them is ideal, but I would say Gnome is better because Gnome is just a straight uh, airhead who just will just go along with the flow and will strongly defend Trump on everything. I don't think Stefanik wants to now hold that position. She was one of the first people to endorse Trump, but... She hasn't been an open Trump defender much since then, and she's focused on pushing herself through Republican leadership in the House rather. And there's a possibility that, you know, McCarthy won't be able to hold a speakership and she could be in a decent position to be a speaker if the GOP has the House and and after 2024. So she may want to do something else. But I think your two most likely candidates are Gnome and Stefanik. I'd probably say Stefanik would probably be better for him in a general election because she, you know, she just seems like a normal woman. I mean, she's not very attractive. <laughs> she's she's kind of chubby. Uh, she has a serious, like she's like a serious politician. Gnome uh, has like other issues. The fact she had an affair with. Corey Lewandowski and other things that she might not be the strongest candidate, and she might be too good looking for women, and they may be envious of her and not wanting to vote for her. So he has those things, but I most likely he picks Nome. Nome is not the ideal candidate, but it's really just about ensuring Trump has a candidate who will help them in the general election and to win over women voters. I think both Nome and Stefanik would be fine with that, but I think Stefanik would help more. But Nome would more strongly defend Trump in the areas that he wants his running mate to defend. and that's more likely to be Nome than Stefanik. And I think the big show of Nome endorsing Trump with a rally and people in the background having Trump gnome 2024 signs, is a clear sign that Trump is gnomes the front runner for that spot. And maybe the affair rumors change that. I don't think so. I think she'll probably be the running mate. Not ideal, not perfect, but there's not a real for what Trump wants is he wants a strong advocate and defender of himself. Vivek would be that person, but he's he's not likely gonna pick Vivek. And so out of the female options, you could do a lot worse than Nome. So that'll be my opinion on it. And I would predict he picks Nome. That could change down the road. But I think the way he had such a big endorsement and lineup for her when she announced his her endorsement, because most people did not have a rally. They just would send a press release. But for her, it's like a huge rally. It's a huge media spectacle and it's to indicate that Trump. Like, by her endorsement, Trump is saying, like, you'll likely be my running mate. And she's very eager for that running mate position, which I think other candidates, the other possibilities are not wanting that. Um, MTG wants that, but MTG is not going to be the running mate. Uh, maybe Bobert can be the running mate. <laughs> I Bobert would definitely not be it. Uh, so, yes, I would say it's most likely. Now, there's some maybe dark horse candidates, like if something happens with Noam or uh, between now and then, are the affair allegations really upset Trump or bother Trump, and he doesn't really want to have her running? But he's uh, pro- was probably already well aware of them before he had his endorsement rally. You know, he could go with somebody like Marsha Blackburn or somebody if they, or somebody like that if they're that eager. But uh, that's my answer. So I'm just going to keep repeating myself if I talk about it more. But yes, my answer is it'd be no. And he could do a lot worse. Tim Scott would be the worst option. Uh, Tim Scott would be you would have to you would still vote for Trump, but it would be that would be the worst option. You would maybe uh, have second thoughts. I would understand second thoughts about that. But the good news is I don't think he'll pick Tim Scott. So now we have a bunch of questions moving along. We have a bunch of questions from Tom. He's got a bunch. So we'll go through them. His first two questions are about IQ. He says, the internet says that Elon Musk's IQ is 155. Yours is 32 points higher. When can we expect you to be sending rockets to Mars? Uh, very soon. We'll see about that. To what level of description do we have to sign up for to crowdfund this? Oh, man. We're going to have a super secret cognitive elite option soon enough. But he says, is the latest Elon Musk biography by Walter Isaacson on your reading list? Uh, I would, uh, Elon's Canadian grandpa was unfathomably keyed. Um, pr- no, I probably don't. I have enough. Like I'm tired of a little bit of the Elon Musk, uh, obsession and focus. So I don't, I probably will not read the biography. I have so many things on else on my reading list and so many else. Other people talk about Elon Musk. I mean, he is an important, he is one of the most important people in the world today. But, I don't know. I don't feel like I really need to read his biography to fully understand him. Everyone is reading him and we're going to talk more about Elon Musk. It's not on my reading list now, but uh, I I feel like I've talked about him enough and I can understand enough without the biography. But And I don't know how favorable he is is to the new Isaacson biography, but we'll see. I would say not for the moment. But if enough people are demanding it (laughs) for an IQ supplement, I probably will do it. So that's always my question. I have a ton of people always demand IQ supplements. I know people have always been asking for a Nixon biography and other things. And there are some people like, I know you're never getting to these IQ supplements I asked for. It's like, look, we have a ton of things to cover. So there's just so much to cover. So IQ supplements will have enough topics to run for a hundred years. So don't worry about it. So question number two, in one of Sam Francis's essays, I believe it was Prospects for Racial and Cultural Survival. He gives a general idea of what he thought it was a path to power. And maybe I misunderstood because my 112 IQ, but it reminded me of the civil rights movement. It was about a civil society forming that could punch above its weight and delegitimize the federal government and egalitarianism. Now that it's been 20 years since that was written, do you think it was accurate? I'd have to think of what his exact arguments are in the article. I probably have read it, but I know that San Francis's main argument for what we need to do is to raise white racial consciousness. And once you have enough people believing in that, you know the possibilities are endless and i would still say that that's the most important thing is raising white racial awareness that's much easier for me to say than consciousness (laughs) it's one of the words i have trouble with that people make fun of Uh, but white racial awareness is really what its most important objective and once you have that you can achieve a lot of things and a lot more possibilities open up before you And I guess that would be a part of a civil society because it would be whites just gaining this understanding of that there is an us and it's not just Americans. It's not just meaning citizenship and it's not just everyone who's here in this country is a part of it. It's something that's very specific to us. And that's really what we need to achieve. And so I would agree with that. But I would have to... um, I would have to, you know, that was his main, from all of his writings, I know what his main purpose of, or what he was suggesting is that we need to have, and I would say that I agree with it, but he could have had a different take and prospects for racial and cultural societal, but it was probably arguing for the same thing, so those are some good questions, but Tom has some other questions too, he had a ton, oh my word, he has even more questions, and... Yeah, he was uh, wanting something about Fukuyama's end of history and other topics. Is like he said long ago, you promised to make an IQ something about Fukuyama's end of history. And no promising episodes that never get made is a recurring theme for highly respected. There's a lot to cover. It's a political and the news cycle takes precedence. But I think that an episode about Fukuyama will be interesting. We will have an episode about Fukuyama. Uh here's here's his arguments for the book Identity are very bizarre and the idea of creedal nationalism that just rehashes civic nationalism. Uh his book on identity was one of the first IQ supplements I did. Is so we have had a Fukiyama IQ supplement, but um we need to have one on the end of history. So it's question number one: is Fukuyama representative of the establishment elite? I don't think so, actually. He's too he touched through too much of the bullshit in what he believes. And a lot of what he says is too... You know, he a lot of his points understands where the right wing is coming from. He just takes opposite um, direction. But he understands where he's coming from. A lot of things he's arguing for is very similar to the distant right. But he just takes a different path. I don't think he is representative of the establishment elite. Because he is not someone who generally believes the bullshit. He just argues a very pragmatic, practical reasons for why liberal democracy is the model. And he doesn't really have like a moral or mythical attachment to it, which the elite does. And they're like, we're on a path that leads to the final victory of liberal democracy. And that's what we want. And for him, I don't think he generally believes that. And he's just too smart for the uh, establishment elite. I don't think end of history is so much. The title is a, uh, is what people sort of believe, but it's not quite what they believe. A better representative of the establishment elite would be someone like Samantha Power or you know Anthony uh, Blinken and people like that. I think those are more people who are there because they have like a strong zealous true believer in this stuff, which Fukuyama is too detached and too academic and too understanding of other societies to really be the full uh, representative of it. I do think he is a part of the established elite. I think his ideas explain a lot of what the elite are, but it's not the full expression of what the elite believes. The elite has a full-on moral, semi-quasi-religious commitment to these ideals, which Fukuyama does not. And so that would be my answer on that. Uh, question number two, unrelated to Fukuyama. What careers and positions would be of most help to the right? Lawyers, is an obvious one, but what other options do you think of? Uh, I thought about this hard, and for myself, I decided computer science, our side needs money. Uh, all those options are true. We really need more white-collar professionals who are at the elite of their Level and lawyers, you know, we do have a lot of lawyers in this, but we don't have enough elite lawyers. And I think that if you're politically minded and if you want to make change in society, if we had more right wing lawyers that are even further right wing than federal society or the federal society was molded into our image, we could make a huge impact in our society. And if you have the aptitude for it and if you have an interest in law, law is really not for everyone so if you're better with math and science please go do engineering we also need more engineers and we also need a ton of more computer programmers we do need these high level professionals at this but if you're politically minded and if you want to make a direct political change Lawyer is a great option because it opens up to where you can be a prosecutor, both on the state, federal level. We need right-wing people being there so they're not persecuting people like us and they're actually going after the real criminals. We need people to be lawyers so they can defend people who are the victims of state persecution. We also need people who can be appointed to these important bureaucrat positions. And a lot of times a legal, a JD is required for that and be appointed to have judicial appointments. So lawyer is definitely an uh, obvious one, but really we do need high skilled professionals. I would say more military officers, but I know everyone complains about that and they say that, but you know, it's not the best thing for our enemies to completely take over one of the most important institutions in our society and an institution that could be used against us easily and <laughs> used to hurt us into prison camps and other th- terrible things and it's not really good for all the officers to be uh total libtards and totally devoted to the system um, so yeah high school professionals we need more of those and lawyer and military officers are actually too i i advise even though i know there are several problems in both professions uh, but we do need people it, there to to help us out because it's not good for our enemies to control the entirety of both professions. So that is my answer to that. Now moving on to this is actually Future American Refugee, different from Future Moldovan Citizen, who you also used to go by Future American Refugee. But this is a different one. We love his questions that have come uh, for us. And he's saying... He asked some questions about Gavin Newsom, so we may have answered this before, but it's like, Newsom and DeSantis have agreed to debate with Hannity as the moderator this fall. Since this deal was made, Newsom has gone around saying DeSantis is unwise and politically incompetent for accepting the debate. What is your prediction for the debate, and does this debate really even matter when considering neither is currently in position to be the party's nominee? Could this be a sign of going back to a time when public discourse was more common for elected officials that are political opposites to debate in public again? I think Newsom is 100% correct. It's unwise and politically incompetent for accepting debate because Newsom, unlike DeSantis, thinks on his feet is incredibly charismatic and knows how to control a debate and an interview platform, unlike DeSantis. He's just a more dominating presence. So Newsom is going to get the better of him, even though it's in a hostile format. Hannity is obviously going to favor DeSantis. It's going to be for a conservative audience. But Newsom likes that, and Newsom will make immense mean of DeSantis. But DeSantis needs it because he needs to gain more public attention, and he wants to be seen as like these are the real future candidates of their party, or the future leaders of the party. And so it adds to that effect. Um, but does it really matter? No, (laughs) no, not at all. It'll just be an entertaining event where we get to see Newsom who I don't like. And some people are going a little bit too with base Newsom. Newsom is not base, but I do enjoy him, um, humiliating, uh, DeSantis. And I will enjoy that, uh, when it happens in November, but it's not that important. And is this going to be going back to a time when elected officials debate? No, only if they're wanting to run for president, only if they're wanting to run for president. So I would not say no, it probably wouldn't be a return to that. So but yeah, I would have to agree with DeSantis. It's uh, with Newsom that it's unwise and politically competent for accepting the debate. But DeSantis really has to do this off the wall stuff to make himself, you know, appear like he has a chance against Trump. But no matter what he does, he's going to lose to Trump. And second question, Christopher Ruffo recently did an event on X Twitter titled No Enemies to Right. I am assuming you listened to it. I actually did not. (laughs) But I I heard uh, people told me about it. If so, can you please share your thoughts on what was discussed and how an event like that affects right wing dissidents? It's like, well, I didn't listen to it. Uh, But I can ultimately say what the discourse is about No Enemies to Right. I understand, Like I think it's better for our side for that to be the point because it would then make cucks not want to go after us rather than them trying to purge us. But you're always going to have enemies on your right. They may not be to your right and everyone will just argue like, oh, well, they're not to my right, they're to my left. And then everyone always does this, even like Nash Review people will just say the old right is actually leftist, you know, and they always made those arguments. You're always going to have enemies on the right and you're always going to have vigorous debate with these people. And the only way you come into a coalition is if you have a shared objective and goal or there's a unifying figure like there was in Trump in 2016. And without that unifying figure, you know, you're at each other's throats over a wide variety of issues. So it's always going to be enemies on the right. Uh, but I favor more the no enemies to the right side because the people they were arguing with, like local distance and this stuff, they want to purge people like us from it. And them saying like no enemies to the right allows for anons and distant right type people to have more of a say in conservatism and have more influence and not have at the risk of being purged. So it's a good thing that it's get that, that phrase is becoming more popular. But the reality is, is you're always going to have enemies on the right likely. Possibly to your right, possibly to your left. It's just the nature of politics, especially of dissonant right politics. But that is the questions. There may be more. Que- like, uh, I think I got through it. I had to go through this fully. But I know that there's sometimes questions that I miss because we're getting so many new people coming in. They're all wanting to ask questions. But if I did not get to your question, just ding me. Say, hey, Scott, I asked this. Make sure you put question in there. I did check the spam folder, you know, to make sure that we don't have this. um, We don't have all these questions there. But so it sometimes happens. But we're finally ending on who we always like to always end on. And it's, of course, New England refugee. And he has two different questions. He says, uh, first is like, I'm quite excited to see the upcoming Napoleon movie and and don't have ma- massive expectations because there's a lot to go in it but Ridley Scott I think he, he should have had an editor here but we're gonna go to uh, Napoleon is perhaps my favorite non-American historical figure do you believe that Napoleon is a good man to look up to the right and what are your general thoughts on him no I, I like Napoleon um, he's not 100% our guy but he's a cool figure he's a cool historical figure uh, I know Carlsbad and some of the ultra reactionaries who are like monarchists are like no He's anti-monarchist. He's a he's a representative of the modern modern world. No, we can't like Napoleon. But Napoleon Napoleon's cool. Um, I think he he is an admirable figure. I don't think he's a figure. He's just a cool historical figure. He's like Frederick the Great. He's a great general who motivated his men. And men are always going to look up to that type of figure, whether it's like a successful football coach or a successful general. You know, we're always going to look up to those figures who are natural leaders of men. And for that alone, I think Napoleon's worthy of admiration. I don't think he's 100% our guy, but he often, you know, the I, I think the monarchal system, the old system was not going to last very long with the new changes going on in Europe and in the new world. And Napoleon presented an alternative to the liberal democratic model. I don't know how well it would have succeeded. And he didn't really have a full ideology to go along with it. But he's just a cool figure. He's a he's a great man of history. He did a lot of great things. He's a very interesting figure to read up on. Um, he's just like Frederick the Great, Caesar, and others who... I think Caesar is probably even a more conflicted figure for the right to look up for for various reasons, which that will be an IQ supplement someday. I promise it will be. But I think Napoleon, there's not as many problematic aspects. And I think he pushed back against the far left and the more radical elements in French society and established a society that was much more aligned with right wing beliefs than anyone else could have possibly done. So, yeah, I like Napoleon. Uh, I would say he's mostly key but not 100% our guy but you know it's a good, you know the situation that faced europe circa 1800 is completely different from our situation so you can't really say that this guy is our guy or that guy is our guy whatever or this you could say that there's some enemies there like i think rose pierre and those types are definitely people we would have always hated especially at that time but napoleon i think is a cool guy and so and based on what he accomplishes somebody worthy of admiration and and as a hero so no i'm not one of those people who just uh um go into saying this and, uh, as you know some uber reactionaries and uh the next question is uh i think he needed it to resend this but uh <laughs> it said on a long quote, is sales is white uh, he was it was about to be sales is white men's salvation. It was something about sales and white men, and he uh we had some trouble with New England refugee. New England refugee, make sure to check your emails. I should have replied back to him to say uh I don't know what the question is, but New England refugee, I know he's listening. New England refugee, just resend that question you had about sales as white men's salvation, and we will answer that for next weekend. Will of course answer all your rest of the questions. So we'll end on Napoleon as a hero. And he's a cool figure that you should all look up that he's worthy of looking up to. I'm excited for the movie. I hopefully it is not bad. Really, Scott movies can be hit or miss. So I'm hopefully this is a good one. You know, Joaquin Phoenix is in it. It's you know, a lot of the the fates are aligning for this movie to be good, but it could be bad. But I'm 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 hoping it'll be a great movie. So that is it for Highly Respected today. Completely different subject than what we're going to talk about, but those subjects we're going to discuss in an article that's going to come out this week and in an IQ supplement, and it's going to be about populism and an anti-woke left and the possibilities for that. The article is going to be about populism and more right-wing take, and then the... Uh, IQ supplement. going to be about whether the anti-woke was a real possibility. So be on the lookout for that. So until next time, and also this is to New England Refugee, please resend your question and more questions for that. We love our New England Refugee questions. You just got to make sure you're sending them correctly. But until next time, stay respected.